Brian Buckley and I sit down face to face, looking at one another, nodding, smiling. It hasn't been the case in the pandemic where I've been able to record with people in the same room, looking at each other. But in this conversation, we do. Such a unique experience as opposed to being long distance over the wires, so to speak. Please enjoy this conversation with Brian Buckley, in particular his commitment to social justice, and then the way in which all of that gets integrated into his week at Hoffman. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Hoffman Podcast. My name is Drew Horning. Brian Buckley is with us today. Welcome, Brian. Thank you, Drew. It's good to be with you on this beautiful day. Yeah, it's great to have you. Rarely do I do a podcast in person, and yet here Brian and I are in Boulder, Colorado, uh, speaking with one another, talking about the Hoffman process. But actually, introduce yourself a little bit in terms of who you are. As Drew said, I'm Brian Buckley. I was born in uh, West Roxbury, a neighborhood of Boston. I currently am a elementary school special education teacher. I also direct a nonprofit, the Southwest Native American Foundation, uh, funding higher education for students of the tribes of the Southwest, and uh, recently started an award for Ruby Bridges teacher, Barbara Henry, a teaching award as well. And a little bit quick hit on who Ruby Bridges is. Uh, Ruby Bridges was six years old in New Orleans in 1960 when New Orleans was uh, forced to desegregate the schools. And she showed up to school for the first day of school and every other child was held home by their parents in a, a refusal to be part of integration. And my friend's mother, Barbara Henry, uh, was the only teacher who showed up for work and met Barbara, uh, met Ruby every single day. And they taught one-on-one and learned one-on-one together for that year in New Orleans. And it's an incredible, as uh, Barbara says, the classroom was an oasis of love that year. Hmm. And so you do an award every year. Yeah, we just gave it out to a teacher in South San Francisco School District who started Ruby Bridges Walk to School Day in California. It's now a state day where all the kids will at least try to walk to school in Ruby Bridges' honor. Great. Whatever we talk about in this, uh, the show notes are going to be full of good stuff because I have a feeling we're going to hit some really meaty stuff here. Brian, tell me a little bit about who you are, like your story. So I think my story begins with, I think, being the third of four children. 
is important. I got to watch uh, two older siblings uh, do things well and stumble. I also was like the grandchild of Irish immigrants who were still making their way in this new country and uh, felt inside, felt outside at times. But I did feel part of a, a clan in my neighborhood of um, grandchildren of Irish immigrants and the next generation and parents having hopes and dreams for more integration and being part of the American story. I would also say that my father always had dreamed of like learning more and going to college more. So I benefited from my parents' uh, dedication to watching my school journey, which I loved. I loved learning. I loved being in the classroom so much so that when I graduated college, the first thing I did was become a high school teacher in Brooklyn because I couldn't think of another way to pay tribute, to pay gratitude to the fact that I even had a college diploma. I think along the way, I was fortunate to meet people who cared for me, like who really like cared for me and did extra things for me in my neighborhood, on my hockey teams, in my classrooms. So I always felt young that I was the recipient of care, loving, giving. And that's a powerful thing to feel when you're young because you don't really know what you can give back yet. But it's a question you ask yourself as you move forward into the world. Wow, that tribe you belong to, Boston, so infamous for its Irish community. And the third of four, I relate to that as the third of four as well. So, Brian, take us just a couple quick hits here. Your, your childhood, what was that like for you? I would say... My childhood was full of like friendships in the neighborhood, care at home. But at, you know, at a certain point, I started to realize um, emotions were difficult in my neighborhood. They were either, and in my house, uh, they were either suppressed and people didn't talk about them or physically removed themselves from uncomfortable situations or they were extremely intense. And maybe we do this thing at school, uh, size of the problem. Does your reaction meet the size of the problem? Tiny, medium, bit, you know? But it would feel like the emotions overwhelmed the actual emotional uh, conversation or issue at times. So they were either suppressed, ignored, minimized, or the opposite, sort of exaggerated, reactive, very passionate, intense. Yes. And so you're a little kid watching that and you're like, mm, neither of those seem to work, but you have no tools or language, but you want to be different from that. So that's another question in your young body. You kind of linger in and I hold and carry with me. So you, you survived that experience. You then what happened? You, you went to high school, you went to college. Yeah. And then um, I was fortunate after two years of teaching high school in New York City to be sent by the United States Peace Corps to Thailand. And I was sent to a northeastern village in Udorn Thani, where um, the Buddhism was quite prominent and was a feature in everyday life of the village with the monks walking in the morning 
to uh, receive bounty from the villagers who would place alms and offerings in their bowls to certain days of meditation where the villagers would meditate for 24 hours uh, continuously. But I, I started to connect with looking inside more and sitting with things quietly and sitting with the questions and sitting in communion with others, but quietly and feeling the power and strength from that. And that was an awakening that prayer or meditation could have an internal compass more than a spoken outreach for things to be different around me. So you were raised Catholic, the iconic Catholic Irish upbringing, and here you are in Thailand in a very different iteration of religion. What was that like, the contrast of those two experiences? It was strong. You can be sent to any country and, you know, many countries in the world. I think there's 88 the Peace Corps goes to. I was really grateful to be sent to a place so different with such a contrast from even the colors of the temples being celebratory and bright and radiant and welcoming and just the, the quiet and the reflection time with the elders and the place that people would go during the day. And it was part of the daily life. But I think the contrast primarily was that sitting still and quietly is also a revolutionary response. And that was strong for me and something I had never pondered mm. until being there. And it didn't make sense. I, I just have to ask, it's, I don't even know this. Is the Peace Corps still in operation? Yeah, so it's in its... 60th or so yeah i think jfk got it going by 61 62 wow yeah and still sending people to all these countries all across the world yeah and it's really beautiful because you come back different and you come back and connect with other peace corps volunteers but one of the goals of the peace corps is when you come back to share and talk about your experience. Is that part of what they asked? Yeah. So we visit, I still visit schools at times on March 1st, Peace Corps Day, and try to talk about my experience. And I came back and ended up on the Navajo Nation through a Peace Corps program as well. It was to continue some of that work with cultural sensitivity stateside. And that was a bridge home, the Peace Corps Fellows Program. And is that how you got interested in starting your nonprofit? Yeah. So when I was time to leave the Navajo Nation, there was such a feeling of sadness of leaving a community with such wondrous cultural history, strength, but also need and resources. So we started the nonprofit to try to meet that need. And uh, 20 years later, it's, it's helped send many, many students to college, to graduate school, but also who then go back and uh, become leaders in their own right. It's excellent. Yeah. So, Brian, why education? Why, why folks focus there? In my own life? Uh, no, or for the, the nonprofit. For the nonprofit. I believe the feeling was when I was at the school in Loop, Arizona, in the southwest corner of the Navajo Nation. My seniors, it was senior fall each year. Let's talk about life after high school. A couple things would come up. Well, my ancestors 
died for this land. I don't want to go to Phoenix or Flagstaff and leave my tribal homeland. A second thing would come up, well, there really isn't funds or money in my family to even make that choice. But if I had some money, I might try it, some of the students would tell me. And um, despite the levels of poverty, there is an automatic financial aid. It doesn't always meet what a child needs or what a student needs in terms of car rides, food, um, housing. Can I get home in the middle of the semester? You know, there's so many questions that aren't met by financial aid offices. So I think it was a way to say thank you to the community for letting me be with them. And it was a way to keep friendships that I had made vibrant through conversation and who else can we seek to support going to higher education. And then uh, a third one, just, you know, Martin Luther King remains a personal hero. You hear these stories, you see these faces of these students who may have gone on to pursue their education, but for financial challenges and difficulties. You start this nonprofit, which aims to meet that. Do you know how many you've contributed towards? How many students? Yeah, so we recently did a count. We believe um, we're at about 500 students have gone on to higher education and graduate school as a result of the program. And then we hope <laughs> to meet that in less time now. So we hope that took 20 years to do 500 students. We hope in the next 10 years, we will have helped a thousand students. I see. Yeah. I see. And then that's your way of staying connected to the Navajo nation. And then you pursue teaching. Where, where did you go to teach? So after I left the Navajo Nation, I went in town to Flagstaff High School, wow. but was still neat because Flagstaff High School had a dormitory for students of Native American background whose parents and families wanted the students to come into town to learn some of the other culture, the mainstream culture, younger, prior to college, to get comfortable in that world with supports. And um, it was a good transition because I could feel both communities within me and in front of me each day. And then you also see those challenges. I didn't have to leave my home till I was 18. Yeah. And then here were children who were 14 or young adults leaving home with a lot of family hope behind them, mm -hmm. which can be beautiful, but also can be a little pressure yeah. as well. You know, So just being sensitive to all of that. And so you married late in life and you now have three kids mm -hmm. and then trying to bring in the Hoffman process in here for a guy who's connected and aware of things happening in the world around him, you know, just, it's a different profile. What brought you to the process? What was that like? in terms of stepping into the Hoffman process? I was nervous. I like to think of myself as someone who looks within, who reads poetry and writes poetry, who likes to take manhood a next step compared to my grandparents and my father. So here I was, I felt I was walking into something that I did not know was fully about but had those goals to push us as humans to connect deeper with our emotions and sensitivities, but also to sit with them 
and try to name their origins and their creative beginnings. So I was nervous. What if I can't explain everything I feel? What if I can't dig deep enough? But I felt the first night, just getting there a little earlier, I felt that mood in others around me. And I think, Drew, you and I have talked before about the unique thing about Hoffman is you get to do this, but not alone, not one-on-one at an appointment. Like even in that first dinner, just saying, hello, I'm from, and this is part of my life. I was like, oh, everyone's here to listen too. This is awesome. And then quickly Saturday, I think I met my seven other group mates and listening mates, but I felt buoyed and supported. And I felt everyone wanted to go in together and try what we were asked. And that felt courageous from the beginning. That kind of camaraderie that exists when people are about to step into, certainly not for everyone, right, Brian, but for you, that sense of being buoyed. I love that word. Yeah. And then I had watched the video on negative love patterns, and that was strong. So I, it made you know, sense. It made sense that, hmm, what am I carrying into me? And I had read Bruce Springsteen's autobiography, who talked about harmful, noxious qualities we inherit from our ancestors. But we also have to like bury those qualities alongside the physical bodies of those people. And it's not easy. Did he use the word bury? He did. He, we, he had to feel he fell from his dad and some of the men in his life, in his uh, family tree. There were negative love patterns, noxious traits he inherited. He was working to put in the graveyard as well. So I had had that in my head as well. And um, there are a lot of languages coinciding and language can lead to movement and growth and power. And Hoffman was there with labeling things and the spiritual guide became a prominent thing and became a fun thing. Tell me a little bit about the spiritual guide. It's not often that people mention that. It certainly it can be very powerful for people. What did you learn and connect with around your spirit guide? So it was a man <laughs> who lived near the ocean who walked toward me. So when I was asked to call or sit with my spiritual guide, we would have these conversations near the ocean. And he presented as one fully living near the ocean, fully part of land and ocean. And for me, it represented kind of being fully involved in the work of earth. But don't do that all the time. Remember, there's this other thing, whether it's the ocean or our spiritual side or the afterlife, what it was. But he was also very joyful. And when we had difficult questions about, you know, what, when we were talking in those quiet moments of, uh, what did you think your father meant by that? Or what did your mother's pain mean to you? There was still a levity to it that answering those questions and sitting them with them. Is supposed to be part of the human experience, not a hard thing to do. So the spiritual guide helped me weave reimagining, well, revisiting 
but also reimagining my upbringing and what I can do as a parent. And it was fun. I still laugh when I think of my spiritual guide because he had so much joy, but did not avoid difficult conversations with me. What a great combination. <laughs> that was awesome. The courage to look at all the hard stuff mm -hmm. and yet uh, the humor to bring laughter and lightness yeah. to the hard stuff. Yeah, which I don't think is easy, but became an inspiration as well. Maybe that's a way to lead into connection with people at these moments and with myself. And if for, for the uninitiated, how would you describe what a spirit guide is? So during the week, I felt a spiritual guide who was someone there for me to lean into, to observe, because some of it was actually like visual manifestations of what a spiritual guide does in that levity or in that presence. And then also reflect back to me in the moment of um, whether it's difficulty or being stuck in like relationship or parenthood. But the spiritual guide felt like someone who cheerleaded, but also wasn't going to fake cheerlead mm -hmm. for the sake of positivity, was going to cheerlead once you did a little work on yourself but it felt I wanted to do the work. Some nice little accountability there yeah. along with the positive support. Yeah, you know, one of the ways we sort of frame it is that sometimes when we are in patterns, when we are coming from a place of surviving and the coping skills that we learned from our childhood, when we're in that, it can feel like at times the universe is conspiring against us. Mm -hmm. But when we are connected to our essence, our life force, it can feel like the universe is supporting us. Yes. And when we connect to our spirit guide, it's a beautiful way to allow the universe mm. to love us and support us. And it sounds like you really let yourself love and be supported by your spirit guide. No, and it was awesome. And I felt a parallel. Poets, we feel... Sometimes poems arrive to us, and all we did was record them, and that we called on a muse to connect with us on this moment we're trying to capture. But we talk about, well, the book opened, I wrote 12 lines, and then I read what I wrote, but I was being led by a poetic guide. I was being led by a force that put the words in this order, in this shape. And it felt parallel to the spiritual guide in some ways. And again, the openness. Can I stay open to both those forces? You talk a lot about poetry. And I know for, for a while there, one of the things you brought to the community was one of three independent poetry bookstores in the U.S. And you led that for how many years? Uh, my wife and I did that for a decade. Ten My years. Mm -hmm. And then when COVID hit, uh, everything collapsed. The Certainly the university traffic that you had relied on was now down to zero because students were sheltering at home. And so I guess I have a question. When you think about poetry, what's one of the ones that come to mind that relate to this work in the process? So... I felt in some ways unique at the process. I was someone who arrived with both of my parents deceased. So when I talk about 
the process with people. They're like, how, you know, how was it? Especially people who have gone before me to the Hoffman process. And I'll say, you know, I have to be honest. It was nice to spend a week with my parents because mm-hmm. I missed them. Now, I also enjoyed revisiting their parenting in their own relationship and things of communication and supporting each other that I got to look more deeply at and as someone in a long-term relationship and a father kind of revisit and say, what do I want to do the same? What do I want to do different? But it was nice to be with them in that capacity. There is a poem by Seamus Heaney, A Kite for Michael and Christopher. And those are his two sons. And the poem talks about the dad flying a kite just on a windy day. And the kite is small, perhaps the size of the soul in the wind. And he hands the string to his boys. And one of the final lines of the poem is, uh, here, take hold of this string. The long-tailed pull of grief is in this string. Take it, boys. You were made for it. And I love that poem because the dad's trying to say to the children, grief is part of our human experience. Loss is part of our human experience. But again, I keep coming back. It seems like it's near the coast. There's the wind, the levity of the kite being tossed in the wind up and down, sideways. But then if Hoffman does have this look on our origins and the parents from which we spring, this parent, the dad, handing the string and the pull and the tug of it, there's going to be loss and grief and pain. And that's part of the child-parent relationship. And that poem always helps me remember our imperfections too and what's built into these deep, deep, committed relationships the right. long tail pull of grief uh, <laughs> this picture in the kite the long tail pull no. of grief mm-hmm. our humanity brian one of the things as you were talking i'm thinking about you know we've had fundamentalist christians go through the process there's obviously jewish people that goes through the process there's atheists that go through the process every religion has taken the process and political orientation, conservatives, liberals, uh, independents. One of my very favorite things about the process is that it welcomes all. And it doesn't try and convert them. People get to still maintain what they believe. It feels like it is very integrative. It's a word I use. You can integrate what you learn at Hoffman with all of the things that you bring previously, it allows it to scale up a bit. Tell me, you know, with poetry, with your work with the Native Americans, with your connection to the Peace Corps, your upbringing as Catholic, do you believe that Hoffman helped you integrate with all of those? What's your sense of that? Yeah, no, I think um, Steve, my teacher, was calling on me to look all the, of all those parts and see how they have woven into myself, but how I want to untangle some of them. But I never felt judged 
for like my background, or I never felt I should raise one part of my background above others. But I felt through the teaching, I was supported to reflect on all those pieces and celebrate commonality with the other people in my group, but also ask myself too, kind of like with looking at my parents during the week, which of these parts really serve me in my personal goals and which ones are detracting. And if I think of my group of eight, I think you just said all of our religions, all of our backgrounds, it couldn't have been more diverse, even though we might have had the same shoes on or something, you know? Yeah. Was there ever a moment during your week where you were like, I don't know, maybe I'm out of here, or you really struggled like it was hard? So we were going through an experience where we had to set boundaries in a role play with another um, participant in the Hoffman process that week. So it kind of jarred me that, wow, humans have such capacity for a range of delivery of emotions. So I was kind of shocked. The other part that was difficult, we were asked to do some physical movements. Some expression work? Yeah, some expression work. And um, how was that for you? It was challenging for me because I am more of a, hmm, let me think about it. Let me feel it some more. And I had to be nudged by Steve to go over that boundary. You're here to learn for the week and to see how you feel during that. And let's review it afterwards. So I think some of the boundaries of my own and of someone else. I wouldn't have been doing that that week. And it pushed me to be uncomfortable in both parts. But wow, certainly allowed me to bond later with my group. Mm. The week comes to a close and you head back to your family of four, your wife, your three daughters. What was integration back into the world like for you? I was nervous and it was beautiful. So my wife was so supportive. I was going and was, is always looking for growth moments, growth edges. Brian's going for a week. This is, you know, I want to see how he changes too. So when I came back, it was to one of uh, warmth and love and reception. I think I always have this fear because I've done several meditation retreats how long can I make the power last for? And it was in my head because I remember when I used to leave the temples in Thailand after a month and I'd be on the bus going back to like my school. Can I get this three weeks of teaching? Can I make this force last? So I think I came home with that question, but how can I do it different? So it becomes more a part of day-to-day life as opposed to a vessel that's emptying over time until your next removal from society or retreat. You're comparing and contrasting the differences between the retreats you used to do in Thailand, which you describe as a vessel emptying until the next retreat, versus Hoffman, which was what? Which was learning skills for day-to-day to bring to the dinner table, to bring to conversations with my wife, to bring to listening aspects of my relationship with my main relationship, my wife. That's great. It has a very practical component to it. The skills that you can apply 
to the day-to-day events, including tonight's dinner with the family. Yeah. And like, I think we need both, but like the meditation, I could bring that home and then sit in the basement for 30 minutes. But the Hoffman is not removing, it's going deeper into the family unit and using some of the, I see you, I hear you. We're both worthy of love right now and using some of those things in the day to day so that actually you can add to the vessel because you're working on communication and understanding. So that was neat. But I was still nervous about losing it. And I compare it to COVID. How many things have we all learned during COVID in two and a half years? But how many are we going to just let slide when things fully reopen and we go back to patterns and habits and things, you know? So I'm trying to like hold on to what I learned. So I got home in March 2017 and that takes effort because it will go away. How do you keep it alive? So I think I happen to see you in my life, Drew. So that's a big reminder when I bump into you and we have talks and chats. I do have um, things up around the house, some of the magnets, but they trigger deeper thinking. Some sayings. Yeah, some sayings Uh, and, you know, meaningful mottos and kind of guiding words for a day. You know, I have a in my dresser, I have some things up top from Hoffman that were powerful for me to remind me. And then I am in touch with some of the people in my group. It was so profound, seven years, 10 years into parenting. I haven't done a week like that um, while I've been like a full hands-on parent. So it it's strong and present that way too. You know, Brian, I was thinking about you describing having a different experience because your parents have passed. And, and yet, one of the things I don't often hear from people who've taken the process and their parents are no longer with us is for them to describe how great it was to hang out with them for a week. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and I think I arrive with, we're going to look at how we were raised with the intention of, learning and growing. So I think I arrived with knowing like my parents were able to do these things. Whoa. Like that's, they were able to do some of these things and the things they weren't just kind of filled their humanity and filled their engagement in life, but still had shortcomings and things. But I think looking at both sides and spending time outside of Hoffman, you know, some of the most beautiful things happen outside of the conference room, of the space, and being with them in the fresh air again and taking walks with them was a reminder of my own humanity and imperfections too. But I'm certainly from somewhere, and I got to honor that that week too. And I mean, even at Hoffman, in some ways, because of a path my parents set me on. Beautiful. You know, you're reminding me of a book I'm just digging into now, Susan Cain's Bittersweet, where grief is held right next to joy and gratitude right next to pain. And this conversation is reminding me because I'm thinking about your spirit guide who brought so much levity 
and joy to your experience that week, and yet also your willingness to honor the pain and grief and your humanity. Brian, how are you feeling at the end of our conversation here today? I'm feeling uh, fortunate to have this time with you, Drew. I'm feeling fortunate to reflect on it. It's almost like the five-year mark. I'm feeling um, a little recharge. I know it's like an hour conversation, but it is when we have conversations with people, it's powerful. And that's, that's what this was. And I'm grateful you wanted to uh, help me reflect on that. And I'm also thinking now, Drew, on one of your questions. I also want to continue to ask the people I come across with, how are you really? How are you besides the weather and sports and politics? And that's a good reminder from today, too. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.